Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I remember seeing that tweet with uh, there was this plastic microphone that you know there, you always saw them around when you were a kid, like you won them at the carnivals and stuff, and, and uh, it said uh, this microphone made a delightful sound when you hit your sibling with it. <laughs> I think my my mind must have like suppressed that memory because I don't I don't remember it too much. Or or I hit you hard enough. Anyways. <laughs> I don't doubt that. Yeah, that's a possibility. There is evidence that I've done damage. I mean, you are a founder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's 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 a that's a, actually yeah. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, listeners, welcome to the uh, first episode of Venture Bros. Uh, fun fact: We're actually recording this again. We had recorded it prior, but uh, since we happened to uh, uh, talk of the events of the week. Um, we actually did not have the opportunity to wrap it up last, uh, last time because uh, <clears throat> some people did not know how to manage their time and enough I'm time lapsed busy. that it's I'm now old busy. news. <laughs> so uh, I'm Aziz. You may know me from Twitter. You may not. I, uh, uh, I'm actually recording this in Kuwait right now, so I'm more on the VC side. Once upon a time, I was a founder. I sucked at it. It was a disaster. And uh, uh, I think I'm, I'm better suited for the investment side. Uh, Mo? Uh, yeah, my name is Moer Mohammed. Uh, you definitely don't know me from Twitter, but I like to think that you do. Um, I'm more on the founder side, co-founder of Abstract, which is a uh, all-in-one workspace for government affairs in California. We're kind of a pre-seed slash seed stage startup. Um, no experience at all on the VC side, but currently based in Los Angeles, working on our startup. And uh, 308 Ventures is a remote first early stage VC. And uh, it's been in the works for a while now and uh, about to hit the ground running. So how was your week? Oh, man. Uh, it feels like, you know, the fun thing with being both a VC and a, like either a VC or a founder is time just, y you lose all sense of time. Like there's no, here's what I did yesterday. Here's what I did last week. It's just, you know, if, if you don't have calendars or invites and events, it, the, all of the previous year just turns into mush. Uh, and, and, you know, this week was no, this past week was no exception. I mean, starting Monday, uh, consistently having fires to put out, um, was talking to like new people at these new services that, um, we're planning on using down the road, which was very, very interesting. But every time we talk to someone new, who's way more technically literate than I am, uh, it's just more of a slap in the face that you genuinely, that it makes you feel like you don't know nothing. You've made zero progress. So it's, it's a humbling experience. I, I'm, I'm kind of liking it so far. Yeah. How about well, you? I mean, by the way, the time warp is not VC. That's just, that's just COVID. Um, <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, as for me, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I like those conversations where you talk to someone and you, and you walk away from the conversation thinking, wow, I'm very stupid. And then uh, all of a sudden <laughs> you have this incentive to, uh, uh, pick up a good book and, and, and get caught up so that by the time you have your next conversation, you can actually speak eloquently and not drool on the table as they speak. But it's um, <laughs> very true. Yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy I enjoy uh, learning and then immediately putting what I've learned to use in uh, kind of a company evaluation or, or conversations or even trying to talk big and raise money, that kind of thing. That works. Um, just very quickly sit there and say, quick, quick, what did Chris Dixon say in the third minute of that video? <laughs> say it again. Sounds smart, Aziz. Do it. You can do it. Um, that is exactly anyways. what I do. <laughs> I just, yeah. I, I try to get 
all of my 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 sass and my attitude from medium articles that think they know what they're talking about and uh i my my entire job right now has been just reflecting that every time we talk to investors or advisors and something like that it's it's immediately shut down so the the facade of me actually knowing what i'm doing is is immediately you know shot down when i talk to someone who's actually been through it all but <laughs> but you know slowly but surely i'm kind of picking up on the experiences so that's 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 definitely fun yeah, somewhere there's a shrink listening to this episode. It's like, wow, imposter syndrome running very strong through these, these two. <laughs> very true. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, but I mean, guess what happened this week time, and last week and the week before and two weeks before that and the month before that. <laughs> China banned yeah. cryptocurrency, so crypto, of course, falls ten percent on the news. Same news we hear every few weeks, it seems. Um, I don't know. Apparently, like I'm, I'm not very well read on uh, Chinese culture, but apparently, it seems customary for uh, government institutions to call crypto, you know, the work of uh, work of the West and evil, and, and and keep reminding us that it must be banned. Um, look, either they're banning it every five minutes and not following through on it, or or this is the real one. And the only reason I say that is because for the first time, like ten different government agencies kind of came together and made a joint statement. Um, about how this is illegal and anything based on a blockchain it should be looked at you know should should be should be seen through uh um well let's just say both legislators and uh local da's are starting to take a look at people in the blockchain space be i mean they have not specified what kind of activities that they don't like exactly but uh you know on the chopping block mining um, any kind of uh, uh, fintech built on any kind of blockchain technology. Um, mm -hmm. Really, it, it's just, I have to ask the question, why exactly would China want to ban crypto exactly? I mean, we get it. Crypto is all about decentralization and the government of China is about absolutely no decentralization. But uh, are they afraid of a rival to the yuan or their own kind of financial infrastructure? Or are there smart contracts that they don't want um you know, in the marketplace that CCP like regulators and courts can't shut down at will or or interfere with. Um, on one hand, banning crypto seems like a very stupid thing to do, to do because crypto is built to be unbannable, right? It's, you can't destroy every single node in the network. Or maybe they can, I don't want to challenge them. But here, I'll read something from, I'll read something from the actual uh, uh, story on TechCrunch. Quote, in a joint statement, 10 Chinese government agencies vowed to work closely to maintain a high pressure, that's in quotes, crackdown on trading of cryptocurrencies in the nation. The People's Bank of China separately ordered internet, financial, and payment companies from facilitating cryptocurrency trading on their platforms. I mean, interesting. super bullish for crypto for, if you're not in China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they, that's that's the one thing as well. Like, I'm I'm not sure. So you're much more well versed in crypto than I am. But I think the interesting part that I'm seeing at least is, um, you know, in the U.S., it, it's seeming that 99.9 percent .9 of VC money is heading towards the fintech space, and recently towards um, crypto startups, whether that's um, payments, NFT platforms, you name it. But you know, uh, closing my eyes and kind of putting my shoes in the putting myself in the shoes of a Chinese founder. If I was a Chinese founder of any sorts and the government consistently went, we're banning your entire essence of your business. And they go like, oh, never mind. Oh, wait, now actually we mean it. Now never mind. Or now 10 of us mean it. And then now never mind. I'd be I'd either move or be so discouraged to do the whole crypto thing in China to the point where I just like shut down shop. 
Right, right. But like, you know, in, in a country that's overrun with cheap Android phones and sideloading being totally legal, um, <laughs> not taking a swipe at Apple, but, you know, sideloading being totally legal and, and uh, uh, you know, people easily getting around the government uh, firewalls with uh, readily available VPNs, can they really actually stop people from interacting with crypto? Now, what I see this is, as is, um, look, th th there's two parts of this that, in my opinion, the Chinese don't like. A, any financial system that rivals the one that is maintained in pure fiat yuan built on old school fintech infrastructure among the Chinese banks, you know, the clones of SWIFT and ACH and the other things they have going on there. They don't want that going on because it doesn't give them absolute insight as to what happens in terms of payments. And second of all, I think the smart contract part of crypto is definitely much more active in terms of, well, it's much more active in terms of kind of developer uh, time commitment and community uptake than the whole, hey, let's come up with a currency that rivals fiat and kills fiat because we're kind of seeing them exist side by side, even in places where it's very, very, you know, broadly accepted. Um, well, El Salvador didn't exactly kill their own fiat for, for, for Bitcoin. They just kind of put them on equal footing, right? Um, mm -hmm. So one part of the argument is, oh, the government wants to shut down any kind of monetary policy they can't control especially one that is basically just code that they can't mess with. And then the other side of it is, um, is the smart contract infrastructure going to make local regulation irrelevant? I think the second one, the second one is where they're very likely to come down with an iron fist. Um, look, if you think back to like the cross of gold speech, right? So the, mm -hmm. the cross of gold speech from the 1896 Democratic uh, National Convention um, so a long time ago, but I think that was maybe, no, not maybe, but it, it was definitely one of the earlier examples of uh, kind of um, a popular uprising to change monetary policy, right? So everyone has sort of accepted for the last hundred years that we're all Keynesians. Uh, fiat is absolutely divorced from any uh, gold standard or any kind of um, hard asset banking. Um, the cross of gold speech was all about kind of bringing bimetallism to the United States, which basically means for dollars to be, uh, issued against silver as opposed to just gold, which basically allows you to print a lot more dollars and bring more inflationary uh, pressures to the monetary system, and that has its pros and cons. It's definitely very politically expedient because higher asset prices are almost always very, um, you know, politi politically advantageous, but not exactly advantageous if you're very poor and you're watching your uh, uh, your cost of living kind of skyrocket. But you know, if mm -hmm. if you if you keep it in a in, in a perfect balance, and governments tend to tend to huge underline there benefit from the existence of easier monetary policy. Um, but see, this this debate has been kind of restricted to only the most hardcore finance econ nerds in university uh, libraries, uh, all alone in the corner because nobody cares, right? It was all theory. Like I don't care how much mm -hmm. you hate Keynesianism, you're not about to reverse it. Um, however, now you have these ecosystems within a $2 trillion market where deflationary versus inflationary and other quote, quote unquote tokenomics, uh, monetary policies with respect to tokens are being debated and actually beginning to be enforced within ecosystems that accept only the cryptocurrency of that network. So the discussion is no longer kind of, uh, loony bin, uh, libertarian, uh, you know, it, it, yeah. it's not something the hardcore libertarians discuss. Uh, uh, in the corner of the library, you know, along with uh, vaccine mandates and and you know gun rules. 
but uh, <laughs> it's back. The discussion is back. And you know, I know because you know, not too long ago, I used to be someone who used to read a lot about you know Austrian versus Keynesian economics, and I formed very ardent opinions about one side over the other. And we're not going to get into that. But in the modern age, this is the equivalent of controlling layer zero and layer one point five of, of a blockchain, and then becoming the sole party responsible for all layer two activities with respect to how the CCP sees this. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, looking at it from my end, I think the so so i do have a question for you since you have been a keen observer of this argument you know even before it started getting into the mainstream um have you noticed anything about the quality of the points that have been made about whether governments should adopt something like like cryptocurrencies now that now that it's in the mainstream where people who might not be as experienced or as you know like for the lack of a better word smart are kind of contributing their points to it. And do you think that's sort of creating that toxic culture that Bitcoin is almost known for that's making all these people in the government against adopting it? I think it has dragged in the mania of being asset and not money. So listen, let's let's rewind like, you know, 10, uh, 11 years ago, back when it was pretty much just Bitcoin. Um, the only people that were super into Bitcoin were people who were really into also killing the United States dollar as the reserve currency of the country. Um, mm. The discussion now in crypto is absolutely not that. You know, people are more interested in in the blockchain and what is what you can possibly do with blockchain technology and all the different applications for it. In the same sense, they're you know, in 1994, they're discussing, oh, I wonder what we can do with this internet stuff and what we can build on top of it. You know, it's it's just a it's a new platform. So. The platform being the basis for new money with its own independent monetary system, in my opinion, has basically failed because even in the places where it has become money, there's still fiat with it for it to compete to and fiat still vastly overtakes, you know, daily transaction volume compared to, to say, Bitcoin, even in like El Salvador, right? Yeah. Um, but the discussion has moved more. Look, there's this meme going around on Twitter of, uh, you know, the, kind of the very dumbest people in the world. And the very smartest people in the world uh, are both really, really into crypto. Uh, I think That's a good point. <laughs> when, when dumb people get a whiff of tulip mania, they definitely want in because you know FOMO kicks in, right? Right. But I, I think you know the uh, more intellectual voices in that crowd are, are are looking at blockchain as, oh, wait a second, we have the next internet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think. I've I've sort of been fortunate enough to talk to people on both ends of the spectrum. Not going to name names, not to offend anyone, but um, yeah, Steve. It, 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 no, I'm kidding, Steve. Yeah, freaking <laughs> Steve. Um, no, but but the 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 people on 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 the kind of like the lesser side of the spectrum keep saying, you know, it's it's another opportunity to make money because I saw a couple of Instagram posts of this 13 year old who, in between playing Fortnite, just accidentally used his mom's credit card to buy a Bitcoin and now is like, has a net worth of like 18 million or some shit. But then there are people on the other side who, you know, I, I think that's what separates the two. It's people who are looking at the, the, the cryptocurrencies at a superficial level of just like, this is an asset like stocks or, or whatever it may be. But then there, there are also the other part, like the, the small minority that's seeing the benefit of the technology that's supporting that cryptocurrency. So, um, I, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to someone who was trying to start a uh, a startup that had to do with um, like NFTs and the blockchain. And you know, I, I went into that thinking thinking about this from purely an economic perspective. And I saw, 
this is a mania, your startup is likely going to be in trouble once the, the bubble pops. But I left there with like a newfound respect for the simply the engineering of the blockchain because it's it's for for very specific use cases, um, it is the most not not yet efficient. Like once the the whole block the the gas fees and all, all those issues are solved with the, the the most popular blockchains it is the most efficient or reasonable option that people can make for modern applications, which explains the whole Web3 movement. Yeah, also there's the matter of speed. I mean, look, the one industry that has kind of, you know, jumped into the to the um, crypto pool, really, kind of, is um, is finance, right? So in finance, kind of right. being a crypto nerd is no longer that weird thing that, you know, that kid who smells funny is super into. It's it's <laughs> it, it's it's being understood as the future of finance. Let me tell you like one way this can fix things. Um, you know, T plus three, for example, like settlement dates of equity transactions on major exchanges is ridiculous. Why do you right. have to wait three days, three business days for a trade to settle? Like what year is it? Like if you're running actual paper, you can actually settle it a little faster because you'd be able to pick it up from one bank lobby and run to the next bank lobby and have it be final. But, mm -hmm. uh, but for some reason, like you know, we, we've been on that system for decades, and finally, things like you know FTX, uh, you know startups like FTX, and also a whole bunch of others are are making um, you know equities trading on a on a blockchain basis something that occurs far. Look, it's it's helping liquidity. I'll give them that. Um, liquidity mm -hmm. is no longer reserved for HFTs. And the other thing is, it clears up this this massive stack that every exchange keeps in order to to uh, uh, process transactions. I mean, it's really such a huge cost center, and it's unbelievably slow. And it, it's just it's one of those systems you look at and you realize, wow, this really has no place in the modern world. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think the you know the biggest example of that, or the most obvious sign of it, was earlier this year. Uh, when Robinhood had to start trading on Game GameStop because the the clearing, I think what was it the the clearing fees that they had to pay just skyrocketed to more than they've ever raised, um, and that's when uh, their CEO Vlad Tenev wrote that article about needing to end T plus two because just like you said, it's it's twenty twenty one. We have computers now, so it it, yeah. it makes sense. And, I don't understand why that law still exists, which was enacted in what, the 70s maybe? Uh, so I do see the solution occurring through, uh, or, or I do see the settlement period decreasing with something like the wide, the, the wide scale adoption of something like um, Web3 and just blockchain in general. Or, you know, an exchange being basically its own blockchain capable of uh, uh, you know, creating its ERC-20-esque tokens for each independent uh, equity share. Also, hey, one other thing people think about is uh, uh, the need for a stock split is gone if you can buy micro fractions of shares, right? That is true, yeah. Ha ha, yeah, Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> yeah, where, where are they at right now? What? I could, last time I checked was like freshman year of college, and there were like two fifty k share. Berkshire Hathaway, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's 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 kind of broken some people's computers trying to, to trying to trade it just because of that oh. crazy number. Yeah, but, that's uh, actually a fun thing of like they. I think the 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 
the the stock's price uh went over the limit of like the data type that stores the value of the stock so yeah. for a very brief fraction of time it was like negative forty eight thousand, and people kind of lost their shit temporarily but anyone who's familiar with computers i.e like all my comp side professors at the time were laughing their asses off yeah it's it's, but, um, it's crazy yeah yeah it was it was kind of funny it was funny seeing it knowing what happened uh yeah. to, to say the least but but go, going back to what you said, I, I mean, I think the blockchain has definitely found a home in fintech, and and it's the reason, if not one of the major reasons, why a lot of VC money is flowing that way right now. Because right. this, you know, sure, sure, is there's the mania. There was a mania in the early two thousands with just the internet. So once the dust settles after that, whenever that reset or burst happens. Uh, this is about like it's it's a viable technology that can have multiple use cases. Right. Although, as as a founder in the GovTech industry, I do have to say that this industry this industry as a whole might be the last that Web three eventually gets to, because the funny situation that we're in right now is we're still trying to convince people that your data is safer and more accessible on the cloud. So, and 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 if you're dealing in an industry that works with a central authority who wants to maintain its central authority, um, it's very difficult to offer them a service whose core, like who, who, whose core value prop is to simply remove that power from them. If that makes any sense, um, yeah. Well, you know, and that's that's uh, the beauty of decentralization. But the real <laughs> question is, what's going to cause to get into all these uh, all these different startups? Given what what's happening to the deal market. See, I just said I just said that uh, the monetary discussion was something that was reserved for hardcore econ nerds, and nobody ever talks about it. But I'm about to jump into it again. Um, so one thing, <laughs> yeah, that, you know, <laughs> oh come on, you read the same, you know, Friedrich Hayek shit that I did. Anyways, um, yeah, the one thing that uh, uh, that kind of piqued my interest recently, really, was just like you know the valuation wars going on in seed and, and Series A and and these numbers that we've never seen seen before like you know seed deals raising three to five million dollars have become absolutely totally normal it's uh, nothing to bat an eye at um you know when i was when i was doing these when i started doing these deals like maybe six years ago you know three to five million was a comfortable series a right uh the market the market as a whole that this year's the tech sector as a whole is absolutely undeniably bigger now you know five six years later and these valuations like in my opinion are a combination of two factors one is definitely the monetary angle like if you if your definition of inflation is simply the increase in the overall money supply, which is the historical definition of inflation before it meant prices going up, right? So mm -hmm. if that is your definition of inflation, um, then yeah, we we've inflated currency in the extreme. Like twenty percent of all the dollars in existence were printed in the last what eighteen months? You know, during like the recession era. No, sorry, during the the pandemic. Um, cough, cough, cross of gold speech, <clears throat> um, and then. <laughs> On the other on the other side, like you know, one thing that kind of makes these valuations kind of sort of seem okay in some cases to me is the fact that by every metric, the digital economy, um, you know, however you measure it, it has grown. It has definitely grown. Like if you see valuation increases in things like marketplaces, for example, right? So marketplaces mm -hmm. and a lot of marketplaces and a lot of disciplines and subdisciplines, it's it's still single digit market penetration. Although high single digit market penetration is still single, right? And you know we're looking at the next 20, 30 years of, uh, you know, millennials and Gen Z growing up, bringing more of their their uh, online habits to their workplaces. So, 
yeah, it's grown. It's definitely grown. The opportunity has grown. So I, I don't feel that bad paying, you know, higher than than average prices, say five six years ago. But this also begs the question of where exactly does PMF occur now? So you know, call me old school, but you needed PMF. You needed product market fit to raise Series A. It could be somewhat apparent, but not totally, absolutely confirmed as something sustainable and scalable at seed. Um, like you know, you'd have to have some inkling of it somewhere, you know. But uh, right. but uh, necessity really wasn't there. It was absolutely necessity for A, and I still believe it is now. But are we starting to see product market fit at what we now call seed? I mean, yeah, I I, I do definitely see because the the you know even reading venture deals when i first started uh working on you know at the time side project now now the startup that i'm at um you can read yeah i know right i learned I, when you fix your sleep schedule you can actually do a lot of stuff i'm very surprised at that <laughs> um but but um no because because when i was reading like even even in venture deals they were talking about you know the the labeling or the titles of each of those rounds are just up in the air because people kind of tag whatever name they want to them. Um, but but it was kind of like a rule of thumb that, you know, seed is basically we're, we're starting to get our shit together. We just need to a little bit more time so that we can um, hit PMF. And then just like you said, Series A was we've hit PMF. We need to scale immediately. Um, but going back to like the, the two factors that you mentioned, so like massive monetary inflation and um, every metric by which the digital economy is being measured in has grown. Um, I do want to add another factor because speaking like, and just to provide some context, speaking purely from a B2B perspective, because that's the industry that I'm in, you can't just build a simple website anymore. Uh, the, the, the way that I like to phrase it is the, the complexity of MVPs in risk averse industries have skyrocketed, um, which is forcing founders to do two things. So number one on the product side, um, even the most simplest iteration of a product for it for for customers to even bat an eye um, is becoming very capital intensive because not only are you needing to build data pipelines, any AI or ML algorithms, data science visualization, um, the 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 amount of manpower needed to build something not only that looks pretty for your customers but for you to ben for for you as a business to benefit off of it has gone through the roof. But and then also from the business side, um, substituting the PMF with storytelling is what I'm noticing a very big trend of like speaking to founders because what they're trying to do at least is to use that storytelling aspect to create FOMO, which you know was I'm, I'm very surprised it's almost used in a professional term nowadays uh, of just creating the fear of missing out by talking about the rocket ship that's about to take off. Um, I, I definitely think those the, so so monetary inflation and and the economy gr be like growing in general is definitely two very important ones. But what I'm noticing with the surrounding startups is just it takes a lot of money to start something simple nowadays. Right, uh, you know they say that early product market fit is just kind of a cross section of everything your your, your um, product may offer in the future, and and I mean a very basic cross section just to show that the basic unit economics happen to work. But even mm -hmm. um, Okay, I'll go back to the marketplace example. Uh, so, you know, the, the future of marketplaces really is more than just like, you know, opportunity discovery for the two participants of the marketplace. You know, marketplaces now are about everything A to Z. So, you know, you need to have some kind of algorithm matching the potential opportunities to maximize conversion. 
you know, future marketplaces is definitely somewhat fintech enabled. Uh, some like kind of financing uh, aspect of it is definitely there. Um, um, you know, uh, you know, take Open Door for example, right? Like, you know, right. if if you look at them, they are by definition sort of a marketplace, but at the same time, they're they're taking on a lot of the financial risk for one side of it, and they're controlling the supply side of it to a degree that definitely runs up their costs. Like, I'm not saying that's a bad business model. I'm saying it's different from what we would have called a marketplace 10, 15, 20 years ago, or even five years ago in some parts of the world. Um, so, you know, that to build a cross section of the final version of that is a little more, like you said, labor intensive in the shorter term. Um, and I guess that definitely warrants higher seed stage valuations because the final exit price of a business of that caliber that actually succeeds is just so much higher than the final valuation of what we called a marketplace 10 years, 10 years ago succeeding. So in, in, in that, you know, say in, in the prop tech space where a potential client, you know, had an LTV of a thousand years ago because it was just a lead generation tool 10 years ago. Um, so, it, it, you know, the LTV is, is definitely higher now. So the LTV of mm -hmm. someone on something like Open Door is like, oh, you know, the loan they generate and plus the commission that they generate for, uh, you know, the buyer and seller and, and plus a whole bunch of other fees that they can, you know, get off of the same person off of the same transaction because that marketplace now covers all different aspects and even finances if necessary. So LTV right. has definitely soared. And the take rate of the existing market, regardless of its growth, is also growing. And therefore, all in all, like you know, the the Gestalt perspective of this is all of those things add up to a larger exit, and therefore higher valuations in the shorter term in the earlier days is absolutely warranted. Um, so it's it's you know, on one hand, it makes sense. On the other hand, you know, this uh, former Austrian economics nerd just kind of looks at the massive valuations and looks at the, uh, you know, the M1, M2 money supply fed uh, chart and thinks, oh, yeah, that's just uh, that's just classic prices going up. Mm -mm. So on one yeah. hand, you know, that, that also begs the question, like, do you want to be one of those people who kind of sits back and like waits for things to quote unquote cool down before jumping back into the market? Or do you want to just continue investing because the cost of missing out, I don't want to say FOMO, but the cost of missing out is just far too great by deciding to be conservative right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely see. I, I think, you know, sitting sitting stuff out, historically speaking, has never really been the best idea simply because there, you know, a lot of the massive startups that have come up in the recent times have always either started or were growing in the middle of some sort of crisis or pandemic biggest examples being uber airbnb and their lord knows how many billion dollars worth today um i, th I think the most the, the most interesting part of it is like there there is that aspect but there it's it's very hard not to ignore the mania so there's there's the confidence of knowing that if you do your due diligence properly, you can put your money in startups that definitely make sense, no matter how high the the, the valuation of the price. Um, and you know, as as many VCs that I follow on Twitter post gifts of people throwing money off of yachts and saying this is what it's like investing in twenty twenty one. No matter how many of those I see, like w what's what's very interesting is seeing people who've never invested before become investors. So, you know, biggest example is like influencers who at one point just had a youtube channel and a couple of million followers are now gps of funds and they're putting money in crypto and they're putting money in all that type of stuff some people may see it as cool it's sort of like the 
for the lack of a better phrase, the decentralization of capital. And it's, it's awesome and it makes sense. But other people see it like people who have no idea how the markets work are putting money in there. And it's somehow working, meaning everyone is going to act like they're a genius in a bull market where mm-hmm. when this stops, a lot of people are going to get screwed, basically. You know, what's one thing that I've realized just kind of going through historical literature from the VC space. And by historic, I mean, like between 10, 20 years ago, that kind of range of time. Mm-hmm. It's almost everyone in every era always complains of there being way too much money in the market. Interesting. It's like this this uh, universal condemnation of a lack of uh, discipline in VC because all the, you know, the suit and tie finance people just look at them as these apes throwing money around, right? Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, you go back to 2002 and uh, the average, uh, average vintage, every fund has, abso- has absolutely um, returned positive. Maybe not as great as they told their LPs when they were first raising, but it was positive. So the real, the real wipeout of value, I mean, that hasn't been since the dot-com bubble. And that's not so much a monetary issue as I think it was just pure tulip mania with the rise of the microprocessor, right? Um, right. But, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a master fundraiser in order to have a good business. That is true. That, 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 that's also a nice segue into the next topic, which is, you know, a lot of people have been complaining about the valuations of venture-backed startups. But at least on my timeline, what I've been noticing quite a bit of is this massive rise of the bootstrapping community. Uh, you know, one of the most recent news that came out of there is, um, and this is all over the place, but the MailChimp acquisition, uh, MailChimp being that uh, marketing software for startups and all, co- all companies are like pretty much those recently acquired by Intuit for what, 10, 12 billion, uh, a massive feat, like not even considering the fact that the company is taking no outside funding at all um, on top of having seven to eight acquisitions of their own under their belt. Um, so, so the interesting thing about this part, so we don't really see the mania side of it because MailChimp is a massive business. Um, right. A lot of people, a lot of people hailed it to be a sign of the future, and many others basically said they they looked at it from a different perspective. They basically said this is amazing for the founder and amazing for the bootstrapping community, but they felt like the MailChimp's employees deserved a little better because none of them had skin skin in the game. So, you know, the the entire lifespan of MailChimp from incorporation to acquisition was about 20 years. And looking at it from an employee's perspective, if I spent 20 years of my life working at a startup that exits the way MailChimp did, I'd obviously want some something in return. I mean, just putting that in comparison with most venture-backed startups, um, this is like a statistic I was able to find online, but in 2018, 37% of acquired startups globally were between 5 and 10 years old. And because most of them are venture backed you get that tiny bit of skin in the game that eventually gets acquired and you get massive returns even if you didn't have the best salary or even if you you weren't yeah um well i mean that's why you take a shit salary at a startup right because you want the equity exactly and that's you know that doesn't only stop at the employee you know us founders are taking the shittiest salary but the the reason we kind of work is because our savings is in the equity that we own um but i think it on on, on my end, like looking at it from a venture-backed startup's perspective, I'm unable to wrap my head around like how to incentivize employees to stick around in the long term and doing an early-stage startup's worth of work 
without giving them any sort of skin in the game. And I think the biggest example of how this can go wrong was a couple of months ago when we saw the whole base camp thing play out. Right. And a lot of people basically said that, you know, the the reason there was a mass exodus was employees didn't have enough skin in the game to weather the storm. And, you know, that's the whole cultural aspect, like the company culture. And that's yeah. a very sensitive topic that can have its own like three hour podcast. But by the um, way, it, in, in competitive marketplaces, you know, whether or not employees have a skin in the game, that's that's very much their decision as well. I mean, look, let me play devil's advocate a little bit with the MailChimp people. And, uh, you know, I, I already hear people rolling their eyes like, eh, asshole capitalist. But OK, so in the MailChimp situation, <laughs> in the MailChimp situation, employees were not conned out of their equity. They knew damn well that they were taking an offer with no cash. Well, I mean, sorry, with no equity on the table, straight cash, right? So, right. I mean, if they were being compensated fairly in a place, I mean, they were in Atlanta. Most of them were in, in, in Atlanta, which is, you know, a hot job market historically and now and a growing mm -hmm. one in terms of tech. Um, nobody screwed them out of their money, right? Like they accepted what in our opinion and in, in, in my opinion, at least is a shitty deal. But if they wanted the security of, I'm guessing a higher than average salary and no equity risk for what was a, uh, a steady growing business in MailChimp, then that's what they bargained for. And you know, they weren't, nobody put a gun to their head. Nobody said you can't leave and, and get another offer someplace else where they give you equity. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I guess look, I'm kind of on the same page. Let, let me draw like a bit of an analogy to other parts of the world. Um, so here, okay, by here where I'm mm -hmm. recording right now in Kuwait, like you know, I saw a lot, and I mean a lot of startups back when I was still actively investing on behalf of a family fund in the region. There were a lot of startups where nobody had skin in the game except for the founder, and it really they it it pained them to give anyone any equity in anything because they just felt like they didn't deserve it. They were employees. They're here. They do their work. They shut up. They go home. Um, this is, it's sad, but true, but you know, the, the, the labor market because of regulation and because of culture is not competitive enough to get founders to kind of dole out crazy amounts of ESOP just to retain the best talent. And a lot of the talent that comes here is absolutely happy taking a mid market salary, uh, and leaving it promptly at 4 59 PM. Um, so again, it, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of choices and there's a lot of ch uh, culture that kind of factors into how much skin in the game people actually have. But, uh, you know, let's say, you know, this story absolutely would not have happened in San Francisco. If MailChimp was founded in, in San Francisco 20 years ago and existed in the Bay Area for 20 years, there is no way they would have been able to retain anyone with zero equity on the table when it comes to compensation. No way. Yeah, I'm definitely on the same page as that. I think you know, just to maintain a bit of transparency here, you know, abstract doesn't only have all of its developers in the US because unemployment is at historical lows. So uh, like any other startup our age, we tech tend to unemployment. look abroad and see, yeah, tech unemployment. Yeah. So it's like software engineers specifically. Um, so, so we tend to look abroad and see what better deals there are. But I, I think the crazy thing about thinking about it, about like equity versus no equity in a single like offer is I'm just surprised at how in most other countries abroad, uh, being paid in US dollars is enough of a convincer to, to, to come on board. Uh, they, they could not care less about equity. And, and it's, you know, the, the same thing might apply to Kuwait or the same thing might apply to uh, maybe Southern America or like Eastern Europe, where most of these like hubs are where startups tend to go after. Um, but it's like, if, if I was a founder in Kuwait, 
first of all, I'd know that there wouldn't necessarily be a massive amount of competition because, you know, just looking at that, that space for a while, I wasn't able to find any. Um, but also if I had an employee, most of the times that, you know, they'd be paid a good salary because if it's a venture packed startup, that's enough of a, of an incentive to join. But I, I don't think like a lot of people who accept those type of types of deals as well, aren't too concerned with the equity because they just want the cash up front. Right. Well, in, in Kuwait's case, you know, the, you know, say the, um, the market that your business really needs to go after in order to be con- to be considered a properly scaled venture business is not Kuwait. It would be the GCC, you know, the, the Gulf countries, the six Gulf countries, and then also, you know, kind of the, the North Africa region sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're competing in that space, I think, uh, well, you know, Dubai has leaps and bounds. There's just miles and miles ahead of Kuwait in terms of uh, uh, labor market development. Uh, especially when it comes to you know foreign labor coming to the region specifically for these jobs, like over there, equity is is definitely much more sought, and also the regulatory framework uh, allows for it to happen much more easily than it does uh, in, in Kuwait. So, in terms of the competition between Kuwait and Dubai for talent, then there isn't really active competition. It's just they won. Dubai won. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you know, San Francisco now more than ever is starting to compete with other U.S. cities and with remote workers for talent. So you know, when when you bring up the, um, it's all about what is considered competitive for a particular person in a particular place. So right. being in San Francisco no longer guarantees you a higher salary than other tech workers in other parts of the country because you can also still get a really high salary and. Plus equity in New York, in Boston, now Miami, a whole bunch of other cities. People working remote, that kind of that kind of a thing. So when you go employ people in countries that are more than happy to take U.S. dollars, it's not because they think the greenback is a really special piece of paper. It's just that it's likely to retain its value. So if you've been being if you've been getting paid in say Turkish lira for the last five ten years, you have seen the value of your savings decline by almost seventy five percent. And, uh, you know, I, this is a techie podcast, so I don't know why we keep going back to monetary policy. Maybe it's just because <laughs> I've been hardwired that way over the years. But th- it, it kind of, the discussion always kind of reverts back to that. But, you know, in terms of what is competitive, it, it really varies from person to person. Um, right. So the MailChimp yeah. people, you know, maybe you can argue that at the time when they were taking jobs in Atlanta and remote was not a thing, and this was the only kind of tech job you can get in Atlanta that wasn't, you know, IBM or Dell, you know, it was a true startup. Um, mm-hmm. There's just, there, there weren't any other startups offering zero equity. That has definitely changed now. I mean, I am not an active Atlanta investor, but I've seen a couple decks here and there, and I've, I've talked to some people, and, um, uh, it's starting to get pretty competitive. The talent pool is getting really, really competitive. Like people are getting poached left and right. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, see the, I think, the interesting uh, about that. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say like the the interesting part about that is like you just touched on a very important point there. Because of the historically low tech unemployment, you don't you, you don't hire anymore. You have to poach, and in order to poach, especially if you know, if, if I'm a, a new startup with fresh capital going after um, uh, an engineer or like a senior engineer in, in a massive corporation, you basically need to build up a, a convincing enough package to even send their way initially. And most of the time, if I'm a startup and the person I'm trying to poach works at a fang and is making total compensation of about like 500 grand a year, there's no way I'm going to compete with that. So 
the you know i feel like that's how equity was able to work its way into us at least the us startup scene yeah. and that's how like more offers started having equity but yeah internationally i think we might have not found a market hot enough as the us where that yeah. would need to happen well i mean equity got hot when cash got boring and now equity is getting boring and and tokens are getting hot everyone wants in on the next like you know solana or avalanche and they want token um right yeah you know esop token is is definitely where it's going and also that that space is even with as tight as the labor market is there's i would argue not that many super interesting uh places to devote the next three to five years of your career as of right the second in crypto and therefore it's you know it's it's become a very hot ticket uh, a lot of the very very top talent is going to crypto the number of crypto jobs out there is absolutely dwarfed by the non-crypto tech jobs but people feel like this is the next big thing and, and you know tons of resources are pouring into it and uh now token looks a lot better than equity on your pay package it's just yeah, how yeah, things I, are going, you know? And people who want to bitch and whine about that, to me, are just, uh, you know, people who are angry that the TV is rectangular and not square anymore, and, and they want things to be how they were when they grew up. And um, Yeah, the, the good just, old days, uh, basically. You know, I, I think you know, we, we, you and I, people who grew up in the internet era, have no concept of what it's like to, to go around and say, guys, guys, Everything you do in the next 20, 25 years is going to be based on the internet. And we're just starting right now. It's 1994 and it's, it's the new hot thing. You don't understand. Because back then, I'm pretty sure people thought that guy was on something. Right. And yeah. Before it caught on like wildfire and then cooled off in the 2000s and then continued to grow. And that's kind of where we're at now <laughs> as far as the crypto space goes. But I think the very, very smart engineers are realizing like, hey, there are some ups and downs. Absolutely. But, um, Nothing we do is going to be divorced from the blockchain over the next 20, 30 years. So this is, yeah, this is where we want to double down and, and, and you know, be entrenched. Right. As, as much as, as, much as the, the industry that I'm in specifically, like the gov tech and the civics tech space is, is completely against, at least in the short term, completely against any sort of Web3 technology. Yep. I do think that when there's wide adoption, um, someone's going to figure it out. Someone's going to figure out how to put that in, how to put that technology in GovTech, and you know, truly make sure that solutionism is avoided. Where you don't is avoided where you don't think of blockchain and then the problem first. Because you know, we've been guilty of that when when thinking of some some of the solutions that we were trying to build. But I think, yeah, I mean, the 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 going back to the point that you were saying about the era that we're growing in, there's. I th there's never been a constant, if that makes any sense. You know, if if I if I'm scrolling on Reddit and I go to r slash um, history porn, um, and then I see a picture from the 1880s or the 1870s. Wait, that's a thing. Yes, I love that sub so much. By the way. Okay, let's see. I got. I got to see this. Go ahead. It's a, it's a lot of pictures. The name is misleading. There's no porn. Uh, but but it's uh -huh. a, it's just it's just images <laughs> it's just images um, from from like different points in history and what I, what I was saying is like if if you look at a, if at least I from my perspective look at a picture from the 1870s or the 1880s versus the 1910s or 19 like 11 12 I can't tell the difference the the, the it's such a constant you know people are still wearing the same top hats riding the same horses doing you know building very very 
you know, at the time, game changing, but it's, it was kind of the same thing. You know what happened? Nowadays, yeah. The cost of attempting change came way down. What, what do you mean by that? The, the cost of trying to change something? Well, okay. If, if you want to talk about purely about government, you know, like, you know, if you have a different idea, you can form a political party and run on that or, or join a political party and try to change their platform and see whether you get any traction. And uh, if it didn't work out, it didn't work out and you went back to your factory job, right? Um, mm -hmm. If it did work out, your face is on someone's money. But, you know, that, <laughs> was, that was in the days where it, there was no cost to attempting a new set of political ideas. But imagine in an in, in absolute dictatorship. What was, what was the cost of attempting to bring a new political paradigm? Your head, basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah, pretty much. Like, you know, failed revolutionaries don't live to tell the tale. Uh, only only people true. who witnessed that person's head roll tells a tale. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, so now to, to, if you have some new ideas for government, it doesn't really cost you all that much to start to, you know, publicize it, to try to get some, some more eyeballs, some more support or some, some more dollars. And in tech, that's definitely happened over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Like imagine starting right. a startup in, in 1999. Imagine all the hardware you would have to buy to begin to put together, you know, the, the infrastructure for you to build your startup on top of. Oh, oh, that must have been a pain. I mean, yeah, the the just the the fact that I can just right now just switch over to a new screen of mine and type in what a couple of characters and then my code's deployed to the cloud is is something that I I, I will never take for granted. Liar, but also that that means the the the, <laughs> the um the cost of running experiments of like new products, new paradigms, new whatever it may be. That cost has come way way down, and historically that's that's been true with every experiment you have wanted to run in any space. Again, like government, like tech, like business, like I don't know, real estate, like power generation. Costs have come way down. Um, part of that is thanks to things like hydrocarbons. Part of that is thanks to a whole, that's a whole other podcast. Never mind. But it's, it's, um, yeah. yeah. And it's here in tech, you know, everything's a API at this point. Oh, oh, that's very true. The biggest example of which is clubhouse, which is based on, yeah. Agora. I don't know how, I don't know how, how true it is for you guys for GovTech right now. I mean, if you wanted to build, like, there's no kind of easy source of GovTech data on which to build, say, I don't know, whatever, whatever app you still have yeah, to spend so, time building infrastructure. Right. Yeah. And, and and that's definitely the you know one of the one of the many problems at least we we hope or are aiming to solve. But the uh, yeah, because the biggest thing in GovTech is like at least for the B two B solutions or majority of the B two B solutions that you build, the minimum you need is legislation for whichever government you're you're working with, right? Um, there are a couple of open source communities. The biggest example of which is like Open States and. Um, there are multiple different open source initiatives and projects where the the CTOs or the VP of engineering of m multiple GovTech companies contribute to it because it's just a shared source of information. Okay, um, I'm also on your cap table, and don't give away the secret sauce, please. <laughs> no, no, this is this is open. That we 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 have our secret sauce is like a hundred to a thousand times more entertaining than this. But uh, the the, the what, what I was going to say. Was um, Send it to me on Signal after this, but okay. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, we we're we're scheming some cool shit. Um, so so the the 
what I'm basically saying is like, yeah, if I was working in a fintech company, I'll like if if I type up a random URL on GitHub, I'll come across an API, a gem, a library, something that's going to help me out a ton and would probably, you know, carry whatever product it is that I'm building. From the GovTech side, there's not much of that. And it, sure, when you, when you get a little bit deeper into the industry, you might find a couple of sources like the ones I mentioned. But the, most, the, the, the biggest example of which is like, when we were getting into the industry for the first time, I was not able to find anything that was not that that hasn't been touched in like five or ten years, um, and that that just speaks to the whole resistance of the industry in general to either adopt something new to to foster community that continually contributes to you know something to benefit people looking to get into the industry or or, or at least from a new grad engineer's perspective to make GovTech an, an appealing target or an, an appealing spot for a first job rather than a job at Google or a Fang where you get hundreds of thousands of dollars to type documentation and go eat muffins in a fancy cafe. Right. So, yeah, I mean, for the future generations of GovTech, I mean, people may build on top of what you're building because now the cost of them experimenting with an app, like I said, has come down. Right. And, that, that's, um, that, that's as for political cost, you know, say if you were doing this in the Soviet Union in the 60s, um, <laughs> you would be in a gulag uh, eating your former bunkmate, but you're not. Pretty so, much. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, I, it, it's kind of crazy. I, I which is probably better than that muffin. <laughs> you know, it's just it's Honestly, more protein. Yeah, yeah, more protein builds character, you know. Uh, yeah, I wonder whether <laughs> I can go into my fitness pal and put 200 grams of former dissident. See how much uh, <laughs> bunk <put>. mate. <laughs> I'm sorry, so Anatoly, but I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> You'll understand. Uh, he's, he's, We're going to hell. He's, okay. he's been there for like. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I, okay. I, I was going to say so, like the. Oh, go go for it, go for it. No, I was going to say, okay, political dissidents are safe. People trying out new new uh, uh, startup ideas are safe. Uh, people trying to finance new startup ideas, you know, now are are safe unless you're unaccredited, then you're dead. But uh, right. uh, you know, everyone thought you know the VC was uh, that guy in the ivory tower who was absolutely untouchable. Nowadays, that girl in the ivory tower, but um, that ain't true, right. right? I mean, 2021 alone has seen a lot of uh, a lot of movement uh, in the VC space. Oh yeah, yeah. What was it like? Twenty-seven percent of VC firms in twenty twenty-one have said that they've they've lost either a key hire or a partner. And um, I've I've noticed this a lot in my timeline actually, and I'm pretty sure you have. But this is sort of a question I have for you because you know every single tweet is either one of two things: it's either a a his, like a legendary VC stepping down from their fund. So like in the recent times, we've seen Bijan Sabet, Roger Ehrenberg. Uh, Jeremy Liu, they've all stepped down from their funds and might stick to like a couple of like personal investments. So I've seen a lot of that, but at the same time, you know, Greycroft and Andreessen Horowitz have announced seed funds of what, 400, 500 million dollars? Yeah, Most like people half a billion seed dollar funds. seed fund, which in 10 years will be 10 startups. Yeah, and, and I, I simply <laughs> can't wrap my head around that because I think most of the people, at least the, the people that I like to believe, uh, are saying that's mostly happening because they want to stay away from the later stages when we have this massive soft bank equivalent beast called Tiger Global that's just writing $100 million checks like they're nothing. Um, but, yeah. you know, for, from a founder's perspective, you know, this fundraising process, it, it like 
we're we're just chugging along, right? But but what's going on at, at your end of the table? On the BC side of things, I mean, right? Yeah. Not not that I am you know a, a world authority on on you know venture capital events, but what what I'm seeing is like firms are mattering less and less, and individuals are mattering more and more. And I think a lot of people, you, you know, it, it, it's like. Um, Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, at the end of the 97, 96, 97 season with the Bulls, uh, you know, he said, I thought there was a very low probability of being able to re-sign all the guys we had on the squad to go for one more ring. The reason being, you know, each of them is now very well aware of their individual market value. And um, there's no way we can sign them all under under one banner uh, and have everyone being paid market. Um, so I see that to, to a degree that's kind of happening in VC. Um, mm-hmm. I, again, we, we won't name names, but you know, I, I can think of at least one person I spoke to who said, uh, you know, I'm me and my partner are the ones bringing all the deals into this, this shop. And at the end of the day, when everyone's done marking, like we're at the very top of the cap table, like, you know, the deals we brought in. So, uh, not the cap table, sorry, but the portfolio. And, um, it just does not make sense to continue to be here and pay everyone else who's not contributing as much as we are. So we're out. And that was a team of two. And that was a very well-respected VC that's been around for quite some time. Um, and they started anew at a point in their careers where you'd think that they would just retire from that very well-respected firm. Um, so I think oh, interesting. at one point, I, I'm sure it seemed like, you know, if you left this team, your career is finished, right? So if you were like a tier three player on the 96 Bulls, if you left the Bulls, you would never smell the playoffs ever again, right? But... Mm-hmm. But you know, if you're Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, you know who wouldn't sign you? And that's what that's what GPs are seeing. Like you know, I can leave. I brought in some good deals. I know the LPs as well as anyone else here. I can call them up and start my own damn fund. And even if I don't talk to my same LPs, so many new parties are now considered LPs that weren't in the space a few years ago, thanks to all the FOMO and thanks to the massive crazy returns and the pandemic. That it seems. The opportunity cost of of me sitting my ass in this otherwise very respectable shop is just far too high. There is too much on the table for me not to leave. Um, right, and and so they leave. So, so what we're and doing- uh, things like non competes don't apply in California. Um, you know, it's mm. it's you can absolutely leave. Yeah, because I think I think what's starting to make a little sense here is like what the before starting abstract like the the question. Like the the period of time when we questioned ourselves on, you know, are we better taking a job at, at, at like a, cu- a cushiony like Fang job and making tons of money and just bringing that company even more value without taking any of it because that's the biggest thing. Like Google makes one point six million. Um, like each each Google employee creates one point six million of value, and they're they're feeling on top of the world, being paid a tenth or even a twentieth of that. Or do you want to start your own thing, build your own network, learn, you know, as steep of a learning curve it is, master that stuff and and, and just build an image for yourself? Because I feel like it, it, it's that that sort of mentality is very interesting because it's being replicated in the VC side, which is what I'm seeing, which kind of like what you mentioned, if if I'm this if I'm in this like boutique respected VC firm and I and generating a lot of value, but still eating the amount of shit as someone under me might. Um, I have the network. I have the skills. I'm able to raise money, so why not just go for it? 
Yeah, and you know, I was reading. Uh, I think it was a blog post by uh, uh, A16Z earlier today or yesterday. It was. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. It's something along the lines of, uh, you know, in, in in the era of like you know, kind of this fierce individualism, especially with respect to your career. You know, your your support functions in your firm are now being replaced by a software stack. So, I mean, consider yourself an angel investor who wants to start setting up institutional money just based on the track record that you've done as an angel. You can just go on AngelList or Carta and and very quickly set up the back office of a fund with what used to take forever and be one of the most painful things about managing a fund was dealing with the back office and the regulatory compliance and the tax crap and, and the, the accounting. And, and now it's just a click of a button and it's done. And uh, you yeah. know the the competition in that market itself has pushed prices to near nothing. So it's very easy, very quick, and very very uh, cost efficient. Um, in places like marketplaces, for example, you know. So um, you know, recently I, I kind of saw uh, there was a marketplace business for uh, dentists because I didn't know this, but you know, there's a huge gap because any seg any any part of the economy that is like super regulated for example always almost always has uh, a, a supply shortage just because regulations by their nature kind of cut down on supply it disincentivizes people from joining certain jobs and that kind of thing so you know dentistry there's a very high bar to become a dentist in any state um, and and yet you know dentists have a lot of idle chair time where they're just not getting uh, the clients that they could get and in in the US what compounds that issue is there's a lot of clients who um, don't have health insurance and therefore cannot afford uh, dental uh, dental work, um, and you know there's no public option in the U.S. to compete with like you would have in any other developed nation. It's uh, you know so th th what's happened there is, um, you know th the marketplace is forcing some of these dentists to be fiercely individual and instead of dealing with a lot of these insurance companies to make sure that there's a butt in their seat. Um, they are dealing with a marketplace like that one just to ensure constant, uh, you know, a, a constant flow of patients and the patient benefits, you know, their interests are aligned because a, nobody goes to the dentist for fun and, and B it's a fairly indispensable service if you truly need it and can't pay for it. Um, right. So that software yeah. stack has now, you know, knocked out the role or at least partially of, uh, you know, an HMO, um, in, in certain States in the U S so the software stack is slowly creeping into the way everyone does business, whether you're a VC, whether you're a dentist, or whether you're one of a million other jobs. And these full-service kind of like fintech and SaaS-enabled marketplaces, is just, it's just making that so much easier. Your ROI yeah. on your time, your assets, your education, your whatever it is, just becomes so much better with the introduction of software. Uh, and that dentist I, example is just one, one example. Right. I, I was going to say like the, the beauty of investing, like the beauty of being an investor at least is, Actually, quitting and starting your own thing is like, is a very smart yet indirect way of hedging like the the bets that you're about to take. Because one thing I could totally do that I can totally envision myself doing is if I'm a member of this respected firm um, and I'm seeing that you know back offices are being automated, um, why not quit, start your own firm, and invest in companies that are trying to build that? Um, you know th that just speaks to what what like A16C's most important thing, which is like software is like eating the world. Um, I feel like it's very, you know, we're, we're in a time where everyone needs to ha have some sort of idea on how software works. Um, if I'm a dentist, then, uh, you know, I have a massive network of dentists. I'm sure, I'm 100% sure that, that I'm able to find some sort of common pain point 
that I can use my credibility in the industry to build a startup off of or invest in a startup with that, you know, dentists make, make a ton of money. But um, it, it's in every single industry where that occurs, there's, there's a golden opportunity to either start something or invest in something that sure might screw people who were in your position. Uh, if I work at a back office or, or if I'm a dentist, it might, in, in some very rare cases, it might like replace what I'm doing with software. But majority of the time, it's just much more of a supplement. It it's, or it complements the work you do on a daily basis. So, yeah, you know, you you're building something that massively benefits your industry, or you're investing in something that does so. And at the same time, you, I mean, you profit off of it. That's, that's but imagine that's what like happens. Imagine what happens in emerging markets when it's not a supplement to the existing infrastructure. When it is the infrastructure, like with cell phones, right? So you know mm -hmm. you you got a cell phone while still owning a landline for a long time after the introduction of cell phones, but in, right. in, in emerging markets they went right to, right to cell phones. There was no landline. They didn't even bother putting it up. So imagine what's going to happen oh, yeah. with the software stack among professionals when uh, you know like when the emerging market dentist wants to get uh, you know more patient flow, and uh, mm -hmm. there isn't an HMO to compete with. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there's definitely going to be. The, the, that's the beauty. The, the the beautiful thing about again, I I'm calling a lot of things beautiful lately. I don't know if it's a it's a Saturday, so I got some sleep. Are you on Molly? Seeing the, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think it's I I got some sleep because it's a Saturday. I'm just noticing. Can't spell Molly without Mo. How? Oh, <laughs> um, actually, beautiful man. Oh, the the the. I, I live with my co-founders and they might have slipped something in my water or some shit. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but um, so, so, so the nice thing is like, it's, it's, I, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, it, 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 what, what I was trying to say is um, there's the, the, the nice thing about working in an industry that's extremely outdated is you get to see that leapfrog effect. Um, you you know take take what Robinhood did to the to the to that area of fintech specifically. You went from like oh I have to be I, I, if I don't use the super shitty app on my phone I have to go in person or go online and deal with some of the most horrible UI out there to make a trade and then have to pay a shit ton in commission. I, they basically well, that's, went that's an example i think that's an example of technology wiping people's jobs out like you know you, you see far less scott trade offices with uh, a rep there that's gonna you know have your phone number so you can call you once a week um but uh um you know in, in terms of uh again going back to the dentist like it just made their job much better but you know software does free mm -hmm. up people's time and help fill up other people's time depending on how incentives are aligned um true for example, uh, Ali2, the software I'm using to record this, is going to clean up all the audio after we're done recording, so I don't have to do that, and that you know saves like 90 minutes of my time, you know, because we need to brush out the phones dropping and chairs creaking, and you farts clearly ate something before this recording, <laughs> which you shouldn't have, but I might edit that out. I might not. No, you shouldn't. It's fine. <laughs> and three months times, like I can't raise money. I don't know why people don't like. But... <laughs> it's just one hour of just consistent burps and Persian food farts um, on Molly. On on. <laughs> that would actually make a very good podcast episode. We, we should just 
if if we ever get to a point where we just go full like Kanye West, don't give a shit, we'll just do an entire hour of 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 Molly farts basically. No, see, that's that's the thing. That's the kind of thing you can get away with when you have fuck you money. But um, yeah. You know, when when you don't really have money and you start doing things and having opinions that uh, cost you business, uh, you know what they call that? <laughs> they call that fuck me money. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. But but yeah. there, there, there's still an ounce of caution that you have to take once you make fuck you money because you know don't want to fall don't want to fall into a Theranos situation there. But no, no, you want you want to be hated but acceptable like Jeff Bezos. You don't want to be hated and you know killed in a prison cell like john mcafee so <laughs> true true ah god I, I hope ma never figures out how to listen to podcasts <laughs> i know she told us we had to start this she was yeah, very she, happy yes. when we did but right. i that uh, yeah, yeah we'll just let's let's just make a can can we make like a front podcast it's like 30 <laughs> minutes of us talking about how awesome it is that we're 30 minutes about good manners and how to clean your room. <laughs> I actually might need to listen to that. <laughs> Anyways, let's hope this progresses to uh, uh, something we can sell to advertisers. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm eventually, you know. Besides once, a bail bond service. <laughs> once, once we were able to filter out all the, all the you know, n- Persian food farts again and all that type of shit. Then, then, then I'm sure, I'm sure someone will be interested in in, in having us. Yeah, yeah. No, it'll, it'll never be, uh, you know, a bit of that. And then uh, this episode brought to you by a very highly respected Series C startup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like you use code no way in hell for ten percent off. Use code my iTunes player is stuck or no, not iTunes. God, that hasn't my iPod, my iPod, I, what's the podcast player called? <laughs> uh, podcast player. I think it's just podcast. Oh, right. I used yeah. overcast at one point, but anyway, anyways, okay. It's, it's 10, wow. 15 where I am. I think we've yet enough. Is... People have, uh, have definitely fallen asleep, uh, already. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. This, uh, this is a perfect commute podcast. Um, wherever you may be, uh, I hope, you haven't driven your car off a cliff or a bridge after hearing us talk about Molly and farts. Um, but yeah. Yeah. What are you doing after this? Uh, man, I, today's sort of a light day. I just have a couple of emails to send out and then might do a, a, a joy ride to Chipotle. And then I have to pick up Ma from the airport. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So we're recording this when she's probably somewhere over Iceland or Canada or something. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear something crazy? I so the flight that I took here from uh, from from uh, when I went from Kuwait to LA, like in late July, um, I actually flew over the North Pole. That was the I, I don't think I've never been on a flight that went that direction over the world. Oh, I have. Interesting. It's amazing how we now see this as something like totally mundane and boring. Like, ugh, I flew a jet over the North Pole to get to you. You know, like this would have yeah, blown yeah. people's minds 150 years ago if you like showed them a video of that happening. Actually, show them a video of anything; they couldn't comprehend video. And yeah, you know, and and now it's like, uh, ugh, I gotta do that again. Like it's such a nuisance that I have to traverse the world in 12 hours. 
Yeah, yeah, and everyone's like, even like, getting off the 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 airport and getting like in a car that doesn't move at five miles an hour, or um, the 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 fact that you know at one point in time when I was on this side of the world and you were in Kuwait, we would have had to use letters uh, that would have taken what years, maybe months, uh, for 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 one to get to the other side, and the fact that we could just now record an entire podcast with pretty much almost zero latency is 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 insane right yeah yeah well anyways Lovely. i need to uh i need to go and set up my uh flight simulator because that's <laughs> what i do on saturday nights as a balding 30 year old who lives in his parents house um that's not sad <laughs> anyways <laughs> and then i need to go um to chipotle so I can do my own version of Flight Simulator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess with Lovely. that, we can sign off and be further assured that no one will ever love you. <laughs> and see you next episode. See you next episode. <laughs>